And now, deep thoughts. Hey, you are listening to the Deep Thoughts Podcast, where we explore one aspect of the Christian faith a little more deeply. I'm your host, Matt Schantz, and this is Season 2, Episode 1, and it's going to be a great season, and this is a phenomenal conversation that you are about to listen to that I have with a man named Preston Sprinkle. He has a PhD in New Testament and early Judaism. He's been a college professor for a number of years, and he's a New York Times best-selling author, so already it sounds like we have so much in common. Uh, he's written several books, including People to be Loved, Why Homosexuality is Not Just an Issue, and Preston currently serves as the president of the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, which is an organization that's aimed at helping Christians engage questions about faith, sexuality, and gender with theological faithfulness and courageous love. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's get started. All right, Preston, thanks for coming on. Yeah, it's good to be here, man. Thanks for having me. Uh, the very first thing right out of the gate I want to say is uh, my wife and I were actually at Q Ideas Conference uh, in the spring in Nashville, and the absolute mm. highlight for us was you and the panel that you were leading uh, in a main session mm. and then in a breakout session as well. So I just want to start by saying thanks. Oh, wow. Thank you. I didn't know that. Yeah, that was uh, a, bit, a bit risky, you know, just uh, to kind of... You do something like that in 18 minutes and, and not create more confusion <laughs> it's not not easy but uh yeah glad i'm glad you appreciate it yeah do you mind do you mind telling our listeners like who was on the panel with you these are friends of yours and they were on the panel and it was it was fantastic yeah so i had three friends on the panel uh one uh, all of them were christians all of them were um tra- for lack of better terms traditional in their theology uh, about marriage and sexuality, and yet all three were either same-sex attracted or, you know, or, well, and we can get into this, but, you know, transgender or, you know, experience, experience gender dysphoria. So they all have this experience of, you know, the broad LGBTQ conversation in their life, uh, but they all were following Jesus uh, in that according to historic Christian orthodoxy. Yeah, and I just want to say you got some cool friends, and they were so articulate and so inspiring. It was just a great, great session. Um, Can you help our listeners understand how a heterosexual uh, PhD in New Testament and early Judaism becomes uh, kind of a leading voice and resource on the relationship of Christianity and LGBT? How, how, How did that come about? Yeah, I keep asking myself the same question. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it, honestly, it started uh, several years ago. I want to say back in, I don't know, maybe 2012 or 13, um, when I started doing a lot of research on what the Bible says about homosexuality, and it was really just a it was a book project I was working on. Just wanted to, I like to tackle controversial topics. I like to, you know, I, I love to tackle controversial topics with a clean slate. You know, we all have these mm. assumptions about what the Bible says about this and that, and, you know, um, and I, I like to come back to the Bible and say, okay, if I was reading this for the first time, what would my view be, you know? And, of course, that's impossible. We all have baggage and assumptions, but I, I love to just, you know, take a, a fair shake of these topics, and so I did that with 
homosexuality and um Early on in my research, I just I got to know a lot of just LGBT people and uh, just listen to their stories. And it just, it really wrecked me because the common thread throughout all of the stories, well, at least most of the stories was, you know, one, I was raised in the church. Two, I was shamed, isolated, depressed, suicidal. Three, I had nobody to talk to. Or if I did to talk to somebody, I was made fun of. I was mocked. I was outed. I was ignored, you know, and just, I mean, just these horrific experiences. I mean, many, I would, no, I would say, I mean, statistically, most LGBT people were raised in the church. 83% actually, according to a, a nationwide survey, really? 83% were raised in the church. And most of them have had some kind of traumatic experience with Christians, with the church, with Christianity. And that traumatic experience has really little to do with Jesus. <laughs> like, they read the Gospels, and like, yep, Jesus I can hang with, Jesus, you know, I, I, I'm good at Jesus, but I am just miserable when I'm around other Christians. And it's not just because there might be a theological disagreement. In fact, you know, 51% have left the church uh, by, the time, by the time they turned 18, and only 3% of those 51% that left, only 3% said they left primarily for theological reasons. So this... Wow traumatic experience they had in the church, except for a few cases, was not primarily about theology. It was about relationships or lack thereof. So here I am doing this research, and I'm like, man, this is just... That's, look, I'm traditional mythology. I I hold strongly and passionately to traditional view of marriage, of sexuality, and so on and so forth. We can all agree, but that's not okay. Like, something needs to change in how we're uh, approaching this topic, if we're just running people out of the church and, and even you know creating these traumatic experiences um, in the manner in which we're holding to our theology, so you know then I kind of looked around and said, all right, I, I want to understand the theology of this. I also understand the pastoral application of this and how can we care for people much, much, much better. And honestly, you know, you ask why did I stay in this? I mean, part of it's because I don't. I see people embracing the theology and getting that right. And I see people loving LGBT people right uh, or well, um, but I don't see a lot of people doing both well. <laughs> Either it's one or the other. They're doing the theology and they don't really care about gay people or they're loving gay people and they're like, I don't really care what the Bible says. It's just, you know, I'm going to affirm everything that my gay friend says and does and that's the only way I know how to love them. And I'm like, I, I think those two those two approaches, you know, all truth and no grace or all grace and no truth is just really unhelpful. It doesn't represent Jesus well. So that's that's actually a long, almost like that's the short answer. It's kind of a long answer to um, why I'm I'm doing what I do. Yeah, yeah, and and I think that well, it is one of the things I I really admire about you. It's it's the exact sentiment of uh, of your book. I, I just told uh, the listeners about in the intro to the show. Uh, your book entitled "People to Be Loved: Why Homosexuality Is Not Just an Issue." Um, so I'm wondering if you can help our our listeners understand uh, sexuality, homosexuality. Uh, Mm-hmm. Kind of, kind of in, in in two ways, theologically and pastorally, mm-hmm. help help our listeners understand uh, what's going on in those kind of two dynamics. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, and those are. Um, I'll, I'll give you the the short answers, and and of course, yeah. there's everything I'm going to say is debated, and and you know, it's, it's going to require loads of evidence to back up all my points. But um, the, the, when we when we wrestle with the theology of homosexuality, we need to begin with the question: What is 
marriage. And this is something that most people don't do. Usually if we talk about homosexuality, they race to, you know, a verse in Leviticus or Romans and say, you know, these verses say don't have gay sex. And, and I agree, those, those verses are there and they're important. But the main question we're asking is, what is marriage? Not even, you know, some people say, what's wrong with two people of the same sex get married? And I'm like, my response to that is that's a really good question. But first, I need to ask you, when you say the word marriage, what do you mean? Because biblically and throughout all Christian history, marriage was never defined as simply a union between two consensual humans, but it is precisely the coming together in the one flesh union between two sexually different persons. It's like the male and femaleness is absolutely built into the very meaning of what marriage is. And so, and this is, uh, it's shocking how few people, really intelligent people I know, never even consider that question. Like, they'll talk about gay marriage and same-sex marriage and all this stuff, and I'm like, okay, when you say marriage, what do you mean? <laughs> and they're like, well, marriage. You know, I'm like, well, yeah. yes, well, there's different definitions that people have of marriage. I mean, the, the, the modern Western secular definition that's really recent is, you know, that marriage is a union between two consensual adults. That's, you know, that's one definition. It's, again, very Western, white, modern, secular, you know, um, doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just that you can't just assume that that's what marriage means. So that's the number one theological question I have for people in this discussion is what's your definition of marriage? Where did you get that definition from? And how does scripture inform your definition of marriage? Once we can figure those three questions out, out, then we can move to Leviticus and Romans and other passages that talk about um, same-sex sexuality. So, yeah, there's five or six passages in the Bible that do explicitly, uh, in one way or another, say um, that same-sex sexual relationships are sin. Uh, it also says opposite-sex sexual relationships outside of marriage uh, are, are sin. And a lot of times, opposite-sex sexual immorality is listed right alongside same-sex sexual immorality. So, um, yeah, so those, those are the two. So, but I, I want to make a clear distinction between simply being gay or experiencing attraction to the same sex. I want to make a distinction between that versus same-sex sexual behavior. Okay, so that's yep, yep. the Bible does not condemn gay people. Well, sorry, the Bible condemns all people, okay? <laughs> it doesn't, like, it doesn't, those, those verses aren't about being gay. They are about having or engaging in same-sex sexual relationships. Uh, something most people don't even realize is that a decent number of straight men and women engage in same-sex sexual relationships. Um, there's a fascinating book called... <laughs> by a sociologist called, named Jane Ward called Not Gay, Sex Between White Straight Men. <laughs> and it looks at, like, biker gangs and the Navy and, uh, you know, fraternities and stuff where, you know, straight guys are engaging in all kinds of same-sex sexual relationships that people don't want to talk about. But it's like that. The Bible condemns that. doesn't care about what, you know, what your motivation or desire or attraction is as much as, you know, are you acting on this impulse um, or are you just engaging in same-sex relationships in a way that's against God's intention? Why? Because sex belongs with a marriage, and what is marriage? Marriage is between a male and a female. So, um, again, that's not, <laughs> it's going to be hard for me to keep these answers short, but that's... No, exactly. Uh, that's, and, I, yeah. 
and I think my next my next question will will um, will lead you into that kind of pastoral side of of re, of of, yeah. uh, of interaction with uh, with individuals in our midst that have um, these attractions. And so, actually, in our context, um, a number of youth in our church have 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 come out to family and youth leaders mm-hmm. as either gay or or trans and. Um, and so I'm just wondering for for those teens, and then of course not teens, but anyone who's who would consider themselves LGBT who may be listening. I, I guess first, uh, what would you want to say to those teens? And and second, um, and it's tied in. How would you invite parents and, and youth leaders to respond mm-hmm. if a student comes out to them? That's a great question, and it's so um, so. It, it's hard for me to give a one size fits all answer because there's just. Every person is different. Every story is different. Every yeah. testimony is different. Um, so that there is no one size fits all. So, so my first thing I'd say is nothing. I would listen. <laughs> I would I would uh, take time to really get to know the person. Get, you know, go buy them lunch, buy them coffee, sit down with them, and stare into their soul. Show them that I I, I care so much about your you know your identity, your sexuality, your story. I I, I would want nothing. I'm going to cancel an appointment. You know, I have to get to you because I, I, I would rather sit down and listen to your story. Listening to someone's story is, is the best and first way to humanize them, to honor them, to show them that you care. So that's that's where I would begin. Um, and typically, this is not, well, especially, uh, let's just say, five years ago and up, up until, say, five, three, four, five years ago, um, Almost, well, I'm going to say every, because in my experience, every single gay person I've talked to, LGBT person i talk to, especially if they're raised in the church, unfortunately, they deal with lifelong internal, um, an internal sense of deep, profound shame, not for what they've done, but simply for who they are. I mean, it is, this would be the, 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 the biggest thing for straight people, especially straight Christians, to understand is that when somebody come out, comes out as gay, especially 13, 14, 15-year-old, or even somebody older, they typically have had years of internal shame piled up in their soul, not necessarily for something they've done, but simply for their very existence. I've talked to gay people. I've talked to gay people who are pastors, like conservative pastors who are just have this unwanted attraction they've battled with. One of my friends is married to a woman, has grandkids, kids, and but he's like, I've always been attracted to dudes. I, I just I didn't choose it, hate it. And this guy who is a pastor, theologically conservative, says there's not a day that goes by when I don't think that God can't stand me. I'm like, you're, you're not even acting on this. You're submitting this to Jesus. What do you mean? If any, even if you're like a legalistic, you know, like I'm trying to earn God's favor, you, <laughs> you, you would earn mm. a lot of points. You know, you're like actually walking this hard road. He's like, just the fact that I have this unwanted lifelong attraction to guys that I'm battling and, you know, submitting to Jesus, I, I think that God looks at me and thinks that I'm so disgusting and he doesn't want me in his kingdom. Daily he battles with that. That That is a perspective that I hear across the board. Um, and oftentimes it's reinforced by other Christians, by what we're boycotting, by, you know, the articles we share on Facebook, and on and on and on and on it goes. We don't realize the kind of collateral damage that we create when we talk about this in such an insensitive way. And what we end up doing is we just compound that internal shame. And as any pastor knows, when somebody has 
compounded internal shame that will manifest itself typically in bad behavior, in bad decisions, and they will try to cope with that. So if your son or daughter has acted out, I still want to look at what's the root behind that. What is what is underneath? What's the thing under the thing under the thing? Like, uh, I don't want to just be, you know, addressing the behavior. I want to look at what is going on in the heart and the soul of the person because, and again, almost every person I talk to that's LGBTQ+, whatever, um, there's just, there's so much just, you know, their, their sexual identity might be the tip of an iceberg, and there's oftentimes just so much lying behind underneath the surface that, um, I want to explore, get to know, and, and, and dig into. Now, the reason why, real quick, and I'll, I'll stop. The reason why I said, you know, three, four, five years ago is kind of the cutoff is because, and I know this is true in Canada, it's, it's, it's even true here in Boise, Idaho, where I'm at, you know. There, with young teenagers, there is, there has become a, uh, I hate to say it like this, but I mean, there, there, let me say it like this, there can be a trendiness factor that might be playing a role in this. Like, for instance, every other high school girl, junior high girl I talk to is bisexual. They say they're bisexual. Now, bisexuality is pretty rare. It's like 0.9% of the population. So is it realistic that like 50% of high school girls are actually bisexual, or is there something else in society and, you know, maybe they noticed a, a girl that was beautiful and they kind of were jealous of their body, but they're like, wait a minute, that felt good. Maybe I'm bisexual, and there might be confused. You know, uh, well, oh, I, I, I don't like hanging out with boys um, because they're kind of rude and obnoxious, and I kind of like being around girls more. Maybe I'm bisexual. And, like everything is sort of being these emotions that are just all over the place. As a 13, 14, 15, 16 year old, especially females, um, is oftentimes because now being LGBTQ can earn you a lot of social status. Um, now it's now, now in most high schools, it's not like shameful to be gay. It's almost the opposite. <laughs> uh, in some contexts, in some contexts, in some other contexts, it still is you know, very shameful. Um, so th- this has created a, a, this has just made it all extremely complicated. Are you, if somebody comes out in youth group, are they dealing with just confusion, societal influence, or are they, for lack of better terms, actually <laughs> gay or gender dysphoric, you know, are they dealing with something deep down, profound, etched in their bones, or is there something else going on? But again, coming back full circle, you don't know that until you've really sat down and you've gotten another person. Right. Yeah. That, 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 that makes that case all the more for how you started out is kind of cancel everything else you're doing. Um, there's a sense of there, we should be honored that, that someone is sharing yeah. uh, this, especially as you talk about how typically they feel inside about themselves, a, a willingness to mm-hmm. share so vulnerably, uh, that first response should be that of clearing the calendar, looking in their eyes, mm-hmm. hearing them, um, and letting them know that you're coming towards them, not retreating away from them. And then there's the opportunity as you listen to kind of, uh, yeah, like you say, uh, kind of make sense a little bit of, of where they're coming from and, and their specific story. That, that's super helpful. Um, just to shift gears a little bit, um, I'm wondering if you can define some terms for us that we hear often and and maybe clump together or don't quite know what each of them mean. Um, so I'm going to give you a little bit of a challenge here. I'm wondering if you can define for our listeners um, any of the above or all of them, uh, the terms gender dysphoria, transgender, and intersex. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, good. 
Um, so gender dysphoria is the uh, somewhat is the newer uh, psychological term that's been given to describe somebody who feels some sort of not some sort of but high levels of incongruence or disconnect between their internal sense of who they are. Uh, often called gender identity, uh, versus their biological sex. So most of us, you know, uh, we're born male, we're born female, and we resonate with that. We feel male, we female, we don't even think about it. But for a small number, um, according to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM, uh, uh, fifth edition, 2013, it came out, which is like the authority on this stuff, you know, 0.014% um, of people would be diagnosed with um, uh, gender dysphoria. It used to be called gender identity disorder prior to 2013, but they changed the term to gender dysphoria in, two, in, 2000, in 2013. Transgender is a super broad umbrella term that is... It, it, and again, as we progress here in late 2019 and going into 2020, the term keeps being used in such malleable, flexible, ill-defined ways that transgender can mean anything from somebody who believes they are the opposite sex of their actual body. Like, not I want to be a woman, but I am a woman, even though my body says I'm a man, you know. Um, it could be that person. It could be somebody who believes they are the body that they are, uh, but they experience gender dysphoria. One of my friends, um, in fact, she, she was on the stage at Q. She says she's transgender, and she goes, That's all I mean by that is this is a term used to describe the dysphoria that I live with, but I don't believe that I'm actually a man. I, I know I'm a female. Um other people, you know, they maybe just don't match the stereotypes of femininity and masculinity. So even, you know, again, in this day and age, you know, if a female doesn't like to wear a dress, you know, she might be asked, well, are you, are you trans? I'm like, yeah, maybe I'm, what does it mean to be trans? Well, you know, do you like girly things? Well, no, I don't like girly things. Oh, okay, you know, you're probably trans. Okay, I guess I'm trans. You know, it's, it's, it's used in such, uh, it's, it's a broad umbrella term. Um, so one of my psychologist friends, Mark Yarhouse, says, that, you know, if you've met one transgender person, you've met one transgender person. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, so so uh, I, I want to make a clear distinction between transgender and gender dysphoria. Uh, some, yep. let's just say probably many transgender people experience some level of dysphoria, um, but not all. And some gender dysphoric people might identify as trans, but, but not all. Um, uh, yeah. So, I mean, even that, you know, point zero one four percent experience gender have would be diagnosed with gender dysphoria and yet 0.7 percent of the population would identify as trans and three percent of teenagers identify as trans and in california 27 percent of california youth ages 13 to 18 identify as either transgender or gender non-conforming so it's like you, wow. if you just look at the percentages there's a lot more people identifying as trans plus um uh, that Dan would be diagnosed with gender dysphoria. Um, what was the other? Oh, in, so intersex is a broad term to describe um, a, you know, a range of medical conditions, anywhere from 16 to 20 different medical conditions, whereby somebody is born with some atypical feature in either their sexual anatomy or their sex chromosomes or both. So almost you know, most males are born with XY chromosomes. Some are born with XXY. It's called Kleinfelter's syndrome, which is a intersex condition. Um, 
some people are born with some atypical feature in their sexual anatomy. Now, 99% of people with an intersex condition are clearly either male or female by any standards of biology. Um, but some people, again, roughly 1% of people with an intersex condition have a really, you know, a blend of both male and female, either chromosomes or sexual anatomy. I just met a parent the other day, it's a, a mother-father, who they have four intersex children, three of which have XY chromosomes and yet female bodies and genitalia. So they, they're genetically, they're male, and, and but <laughs> their bodies are, are female. Uh, that's, a, yeah, that's a rare condition, but I mean, the, for, this, for this household, it's not rare. It's, you know, about three yeah. of the four kids. So, wow. um, yeah. No, that's super helpful. That's informative, right? We hear the terms... Yeah, no, we hear those terms and just those descriptors are, are super, super helpful because we, we want to be learners here and, and, and understand the terms and, and what's being talked about. It's only helpful. Um, you're, a, you're a biblical scholar. Um, why don't you help us um, a little bit understand gender uh, theologically, uh, pastorally, uh, gender as it would relate to um, transgender and what we're seeing in our, our cultural moment here? Yeah, gosh. So this is um, this might be one of the most confusing and um, uh, I don't know, like like uh, thoughtlessly tossed around terms today is, is the term gender. So let's back up a little bit. Up until say 1970, the terms the terms sex and gender were used more or less synonymously. Sex. Uh, is a, a term for biological sex, you know, you're, yep. you know, and so humans are a sexually dimorphic species. We are male or female. That's how we reproduce. That's how we exist. And except for, again, some rare intersex conditions, all humans are either male or female. This is not debated. This is just, you know, nobody who has went to med medical school, you know, would disagree with what I just said. Nobody who went to fifth grade science would disagree with what I just said. That's mm -hmm. just a fact. I mean, mm -hmm. humans are sexually dimorphic. Okay, so sex, so then, but more recently, since 1970s, early 70s, late 60s, people wanted to make a distinction between gender and sex. So, okay, sex is your biology, but gender has to do with, um, and again, even the term gender can be broken down into, like, gender roles, like societal expectations mm -hmm. for what it means to be male or female, or, the, you know, the terms you can almost use is masculinity and femininity. We can all agree that we can see a difference between a biological male versus masculinity. So a male who's in a coma is a male. But is that male masculine? It's like, well, I don't know. He's in a coma. Like, does he play football? Is he, you know, strong? Does he have a deep voice? Is he assertive and right, right, right. not emotional? Or what does do you know? he eat bacon <laughs> so, and so like octagons? And, yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so you have, yeah. So when people say gender is a social construct, well, you're, whenever somebody, whenever anybody says gender is, you need to stop them and say, please define what you mean by gender. Because literally, I mean, I could think of hundreds of different ways in which people use a term in a single book. I mean, you know, I'm reading a book right now, and every time they use gender, it means something different. I don't think he even realizes. <laughs> so, uh, yes, uh, gender, according to how a lot of people use it, masculinity and femininity, those are partly social constructs. There might be biological reasons why most males are masculine, but it's not, there are, we can all agree that there are societal expectations and assumptions there. 
And then you have, you know, gender identity. So that's gender role is like masculinity, femininity. And then gender identity has, is defined as like your internal sense of self as male, female, both, or neither is, is how it's typically defined. But even that is like, I see people use gender identity all over the place as if we all know what we're talking about. But what does that mean? What does that mean when a factual male has an internal sense of self that isn't female? Like, what, what is that? Like, how, how would you draw that? How would you, well, it's just it's who they are. Okay, well, and, and a lot of times you have these assumptions about gender that can, can become very nebulous, like standing in thin air, you know, in midair with no real foundation. And, and um, I mean, that's part of what I'm trying to do right now is really sort out when people say, like, what do they actually mean? And then a lot of times I don't think they know it has become, you know, a term that's tossed around, you know, quite often. One of the, well, let, let me say one more thing and I'll stop here. I mean, two of the kind of concrete theories about gender is that, is that it's kind of, kind of rooted in the brain. So you can have somebody who has a male body but a female brain. Okay, that would be one theory. Um, that's kind of the roots, the concrete roots of this, you know, somebody's gender that might be different than their sex. Um, or um, on a more theological level, some people say some people might be born with, say, a feminine or a female soul and a male body. Okay. Now, both of those theories, I think, are, well, for that, yeah, without getting into it, they need to be proven, not just assumed. Um, but those would be two kind of, if you really dig down deep, in this disconnect between sex and gender that exists in some people. You know, some people point to the brain, some people point to the soul. But at the end of the day, nine times out of ten, when people describe gender as something different than sex, they end up just describing these stereotypes of masculinity and femininity, which is a little bit odd when I think when, you know, people that would typically be very progressive in their ideology and in their politics and their theology are I don't even know if they realize this, but they're almost like resurrecting old school 1950 gender stereotypes <laughs> of masculinity and femininity as a foundation upon which to build an idea. So, for instance, if a boy doesn't like five-year-old kid, says, I'm a, I'm a girl, it's like, why do you think you're a girl? Well, I, I, I want to wear a dress. I don't like to play sports. I don't like to hang out with the boys. They smell funny. Or, you know, one kid said, you know, I'm not a boy because boys sweat, and I don't like to sweat. Okay. Well, all all of this is simply a stereotype. So if we say, "Oh, well, in that case, you must be a girl," I mean, you see where this goes on. You're using this stereotype of femininity and masculinity um, as a foundation upon which to build an idea that this male might actually be a a female. I'll stop there because again, I, I'm yeah, being yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so Mark Yarhouse, who you mentioned earlier, he, he would say, just kind of latching this on, kind of theologically to God created them male and female, but we find mm. like some of these unique intersex scenarios that you spoke to as well. Yar, Yarhouse would advise mm. uh, lovingly walking with, whether it's your kids or people in your life, walking with them and encouraging them towards um, um, living out their birth sex is is that sort of yeah. would you root that down kind of theologically as 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 your trajectory as well or do you find it even more nuanced than that yeah no i would definitely agree with that i, I would want everybody especially if you're uh, you know conservative christian to before we i'll just say we 
assert kind of our theological view. We need to be hyper-sensitive and aware of how incredibly debilitating and distressing um, some levels of gender dysphoria can be. It is, sit down and talk to somebody to dis- with gender dysphoria and have them describe, you just sit there and listen for an hour, uh, have them describe the dysphoria, and, and <laughs> it, it, it's excruciating. So I think we need to have, we need to be able to formulate and express our theology with that kind of compassionate posture. Uh, but, but yes, I, I do think theologically, you know, I mean, just to get explicit, explicitly biblical, <laughs> um, in, in Genesis 1, you know, when God creates humanity, he creates us in his image, the most profound statement about humanity in the Bible, and Christianity. Yeah, right? This is foundational to what it means to be human. We are created in God's image. But then the very next sentence is, you know, in the image of God, he created them. Then he says, male and female, he created them. So our male, and, and those are biological terms. They're not, those aren't gender identities. Those are biological because the very next verse is be fruitful and multiply. Like it's, it's which is correlated with being male and female, our, our respective roles of reproductive. So our sex embodiment and the most important passage about what it means to be human is correlated with what it means to bear God's image. On top of that, we have throughout Scripture a very, very high view of the body. First uh, Corinthians, Paul deals with this extensively with, with the Corinthian church and all throughout Scripture, that our, our bodies, but not only our, our bodies, but our sex bodies are a significant part of our human identity, and it's correlated with how we bear God's image. All that to say, um, I don't um, I, I think our male and female sex bodies, in, in cases where there's no ambiguity, again, I'm not talking about intersex cases where there's like, a, you know, a, man, this is a male and a female. You know, I've got a friend who is, who is actually both male and female. Like, there's no... <laughs> he has everything. Okay, I'll just leave it at that. She, they have everything. Um, hmm. But in case, in, you know, 99.99% of cases when somebody is either male or female, like, that is that is a... That is a, that's not, oh, this is just my body, this isn't my real you. Like, a Christian view of human nature would say that your body is a significant part of your human identity, and your sex body is wrapped up into that. So, yeah, I mean, theologically, um, in, in that place of extreme compassion and pastoral understanding and relationship and weeping with those who weep, I, I do think that the, the best Christian position is to help somebody to walk into and live into their sex-embodied identity. Super helpful. Um, we're running up against it here, so um, I don't even know if this is possible, but I, I want to ask a couple questions that will try and go a little more rapid fire. And other, if if, if okay. we're running out of time, we just we'll just call it. But uh, there are some common LGBT questions that the church community seem to ask often. And so, mm-hmm. actually, while well, some of them kind of make me cringe a bit sometimes, I recognize as a pastor that <laughs> those in my church need thoughtful responses to the questions they actually have, right? So, so, so yeah. here's, a, here's yeah. a couple of them. Should I attend a gay wedding? That's a great question. Um, it, you know, it depends. I think it really depends, and, and I don't want to be evasive, uh, but I think that uh, first of all, it's a gray area. Attending a wedding doesn't mean you necessarily endorse everything going on there. 
secondly, I would encourage somebody to be consistent. If you don't, if you only attend quote unquote, you know, biblical weddings, then don't go attend a wedding where a believer's marrying an unbeliever, where somebody's been unbiblically divorced and is getting remarried. If that's your policy, I can respect that. Um, but typically, if it's a loved one, a relative, and you don't attend a same-sex wedding, it's a good, there's a good chance that's going to sever or at least impair the relationship to where you might miss out on future opportunities to embody Jesus in that person's life. So it is a gray area. Um, I do have an online paper that talks much more extensively about it at the centerforfaith.com. Um, yeah, it's I read titled, it, Can the Christian Attend a Same-Sex Wedding? So, it's, really, yeah. it's really good. I've, I've, I've sent it on to a couple of people, actually. Um, another question, what gender pronouns should we use for trans or gender dysphoric individuals? I, I recommend using the pronouns that the person prefers. Um, uh, I, I, in 99% of cases, if you refuse to use their pronouns, then you have just ended that relationship. <laughs> so for me, the, the relationship, if I care about the person and I want to embody Jesus in their life, I'm like, all right, I want to build relational bridges. And the best way to crush any relational bridge is to refuse to use the pronoun. Um, so I'm going to use the pronoun, not because I believe necessarily what they mean by the pronoun, you know, if uh, I believe they are either male or female, unless they're intersex, um, but I'm going to meet them where they're at so that I can be in a relationship with the person and walk with them to where Jesus wants them to be. So yeah, I would say use, use the pronoun as a way to meet them where they're at. Right. Embodying some of the hospitality that we're called to. That's good. Um, here's one of the ones that makes me cringe a little bit, but it's, it's another honest question. What should a church do or a Christian school do when it comes to gender assigned washrooms? Oh, <laughs> I think a church should, uh, again, start, well, this is a little too late now, but it's, uh, to preempt some of the potential problems, uh, I think gender neutral, single stall bathrooms are the way to go. And I've talked to some churches that they, they, they already could see the stuff, you know, the handwriting of the wall. So if you do that, then I think that's the best way to go. I've talked to several trans people who say, if I actually had the courage to show up at church, the first thing I'm looking for is a single stall gender neutral bathroom. Because for a trans person or even an intersex person, it is a nightmare to be in public and have to go to the bathroom. It's just, it's, 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 causes all kinds of anxiety or whatever. So I can't even think about your sermon that you're preaching at me if I'm happy with the bathroom and I don't really fit into either of these two options. So gender neutral, single stall bathrooms are the way to go. Again, I think that comes down to just good Christian hospitality, right? That, that gives us something good yep. to think about in just the way we design facilities. Hey, look, questions about faith, sexuality, and gender are among the most pressing ethical questions facing the church today. So I want to invite our listeners to head over to the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. Uh, check out the website. There's a ton of resources available there. Uh, specifically a 10-week small group learning experience called Grace Truth that helps Christians, churches, and community groups engage the conversation about homosexuality and LGBTQ-related questions with theological faithfulness and courageous love. Uh, Preston, you are a gift to the church. You're a really important voice. I'm super thankful for you. Thanks for taking the time and having this conversation. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Thank you.
I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. I think Preston's such a helpful, important voice around these things and the way he invites us to speak with charity, love, and faithfulness is so good. If you uh, know of anyone who might benefit from the content in this episode, I just invite you to pass it along. Please, we want it to be useful to as many people as possible. Another way you can get the word out about the podcast is you can go online and give it an honest five-star review. I have no shame. I'll ask for things like that. Uh, Also, I want to uh, say a special thanks to Jordan Esau, the show's producer. He patches in the calls and puts the intro music together, edits it in such a way that it sounds coherent. He's really a miracle worker. And so thank you, Jordan, for all your hard work. Finally, next week, I'm going to give a call to Dr. Daniel Strange uh, all the way in London, England, and we are going to have a conversation about connecting your faith with what you watch, read, and play. Hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Uh, Preston, when it comes to baptism as an Anabaptist, I've always been an immersion guy. Uh, but this conversation has given me the sense that maybe I'm okay with sprinkle. So, bad, bad Bible joke right there. That's, you know, sometimes a pastor just has to drop that. Okay. <laughs>